we're sitting in a revelation of who we are and why knowing who we are will change how we do things and how we define things. So all we've been talking about lately is who we are and then all the details underneath that. Uh, we've talked about our worth. We've talked about rest. We've talked about Sabbath. We've talked about why sometimes God's silence is actually his goodness. And I've had a lot of people email me and message me about that message. So if you missed that, go back and, and check that out. And then finally, last week, we talked about why seasons that the world might call mundane or purposeless are actually imperative and full of purpose. Um, but today, I want to do, do y'all hear some music playing? Thank you. Um, somebody's worshiping. Today, <laughs> I want to do sort of a part two of last week. Because when you're defining what I talked about, incubation seasons, so seasons of maturing, when you're defining those, it can be easy to convince yourself that God remembers his word in the short term. So when, when you're in a season where you feel like the Lord is maturing you, if you missed last week, go back and check it out. When you feel like you're in a season where the Lord has you in, in a controlled environment just to mature you, it can be real easy to, to as they said, pump yourself up for a few months. You know what I mean? In the short term, it's, you know, it's like the Lord, he knows his word. He's got me in the season. But what happens, what happens when it's been years or decades or maybe even multiple generations? Over time, though we know all the truth of why I'm here, we really start to question. I don't know about you. This is me. We start to question if God actually remembers what he spoke. Sometimes it's been so long since God gave us, let's say, a promise, or we would say maybe even a word or whatever. It's been so long that we even forget. And if we forget, surely God has forgotten, or we misheard, or he was wrong. This is the, this is the stuff we kind of tell ourselves, right? If it's been years, then maybe I heard wrong, or maybe God lied, or maybe God forgot, or maybe I forgot, right? So our impoverished and wrong view of God that has been equally peddled by the church and the world has called us to see, caused us to see God's love as tolerance at best. And I say this a lot, but this is really going to have a lot to do with what we're going into today. This has been pushed on us by religion and honestly by the world equally that God's love for us, his love, is really tolerance at best. Disappointed on average. That he loves us because he has to and is ready and willing at any moment to kick us out of the fold when we get it wrong. That's how we view the Lord. That's how we view God's love. And because of this view of God, who John says is love, we love others with what we define as tolerance. I, I, just, I need to just kind of get in the kind of brains of this, okay, just for a second. God is love. That's what First John says, okay? So you can't define anything with love that you can't define God with and vice versa. God is love. It's, in, it's not just a part of his nature, it's him. 
It's his whole nature. Okay? So if I view God's love, or God, who is love, as tolerant, then my standard for loving others as Christ has loved me or as God has loved me will be tolerance. Right? So you have the, our whole culture today, you, this, this theme you keep hearing is, man, we just need to love. We just need to love, man. Just love, love, love. And what they're saying is, just tolerate everybody. That's re- I mean, really, that's what they're saying. Right? When we say love, we mean don't say anything bad about anybody else's way of doing things. That's, I mean, that's really, so tolerate. Right? When I look at my daughter, and if you define tolerance as love, then you would say, me and Jordan, do not love our daughter. Why? Because when she's bad, which is very rare, but when she's bad, we don't just sit, man, we're just going to let her do her thing. That's her. What's the thing that Oprah says? Be you or whatever? Yeah, we, is it, you know, just let her be you. You know what I mean? Just, just do you. We don't, you know what we do? We say, we ain't doing this. That, that's not what we do in this house. You know what I'm saying? When I grew up, there was very little talking. All right? It was, you do wrong, you, you will never do that again. Um, but, but me and Jordan try to at least explain things before any kind of punishment comes. So at least she knows, but we don't tolerate, right? Because we have a standard for her that we know this is who you're going to be. And in order for you to go from three years old to a full grown adult and be what we are telling you, you're going to be, which is good, which is loving, which is loved and beloved by God, etc. If you're going to be that, we can't let you live at the low standard of moments when you want to be bad. Because we love you, we're going to correct these moments so that you can live up to what we know you can be. That's love. So if I love my neighbor as I love myself, guess what standard I don't hold myself to? Tolerance. We are hard on ourselves, are we not? Like when we look in the mirror, how many of y'all, I won't, don't raise your hand. How many of y'all this morning were late because you couldn't get the right clothes on or you couldn't get your hair to do the right thing or you couldn't get your face to do the right thing? Or, you, know, how ma- you know what I mean? Right? All the you know. See, see I, I'm saying this because I do that too, okay? I ain't afraid, all right? So I do that. Kyle's like hiding, right? No, I'm just kidding. Kyle doesn't have to do that. He just wakes up, boop, all right, I'm ready. But people like me, on the other hand, takes a long time. So anyway, <laughs> to get prison, and, and, you know, especially as you get older, it definitely takes a little bit longer. But uh, you can start getting some gray hairs in here, which I love. Um, anyway, so we, but we hold ourselves to a standard that we know we should be, Right? We don't let ourselves live under any other standard, but honestly, we hold ourselves really to a way too high of standard. But we hold ourselves to it. So if I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, that doesn't mean I'm going to nitpick. It means I'm going to see them at their best. And if they're not living at their best as someone who is a brother or a sister, especially for believers in Christ, I'm going to step in and tell them what they could be because I actually love them. So it's hate for me to allow them to live in anything other than what they're really, what they should be. You know what I'm saying? And again, that doesn't mean I'm going to nitpick. It doesn't mean, man, why are you doing this? It means I'm going to step in in a moment where somebody feels worthless and say, you know, you're full of worth. He views you the same way he views his son. 
I'm not going to let people stay down here. Just like me and Ellington. Ellington's our only other staff member. And when we come in the office, if one of us has just had a rough meeting or a rough day or whatever, the other steps in and says, I'm not going to let you stay like that. You're this, or this is where you should be. And by the time we end that conversation, we're ready to take on the world, right? That's what you're supposed to do on Tuesday nights. Same thing. So because we view God's love as really just tolerance over us, we love others with really just tolerance. This deep-rooted and false God, because that's not who God is. We worship is not the Yahweh of the Bible or of history. This false God is distant, he's tolerant, he's angry, he's disappointed, and to get to the subject of today, really, he only speaks words or promises to get us to do something and ultimately for him to forget and let us down. We, we struggle with what we say as taking steps of faith, which I think every step we should take should be steps of faith. So I don't, you know, but we make big deals out of it because a lot of people don't take steps of faith. But these big, you know, steps of faith, right? We struggle so much with doing those because we think there's disappointment on the other side of it. I mean, you don't have to, like, I've been saying this this whole political season. Talk is cheap. You can say whatever you want. I don't care about what you say. I care about what you do. You know what I'm saying? You can say everything in the world, but I'm looking at what you have done, and I'm looking at what you're going to do, and honestly, what you're doing right now. So when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, it's really odd that we will talk ourselves into believing this false God who's going to let us down rather than just stepping in and living in the one true God who it is impossible for him to let us down. To be clear, that is not Yahweh that Scripture and history speak of. Okay? That is called religion. But Yahweh doesn't have to love you. He doesn't have to because of what Jesus did. He loves you with the same love he loves his son with. He is enthralled with you. You are the treasure in the field he sells everything to buy the field for. He is closer than your own skin. He is happy and proud of you. He is never disappointed at his beloved ones. And he only speaks what he intends to bring to pass in the right time. That's the Yahweh in your Bible. If you believe in any other idea of God that isn't what I just read, you believe in a false God. It's an idol and it is not Yahweh. If you believe in a God that has the capability to let you down, you've bought into a false God. Why don't people give? The average giving in the church, 23 bucks a person per month, right? Why don't people give? Because they think once they give, he's going to let them down on the back end. That's, I mean, that's where it all boils down to. It's an idea that God is disappointed in us, number one, and is excited for the moment when he can let us down and let us taste what it is for us to be this snow-covered dung that is worthless and just a sinner saved by grace that he just happened to love just enough to send Jesus so that grace could save us from hell. Right? 
And this snow-covered dung thing, that's a theological statement. That's not just something I made up. That's something crazy long, long ago made up. Um, so today, I want to speak life into the pieces of your story and my story, specifically into things to come that you feel because of time that God has forgotten about. Our God remembers. Remembers. That's going to be the word that this whole day revolves around. Okay? So let me give you some backstory. We're going to be in Exodus 2. So over 400 years ago, by the time we get to Exodus, 400 years before that, over 400 years, Yahweh had promised Abraham two things. He had promised him descendants like the stars in the sky that would be great, that the whole earth would be blessed through, and he promised them Canaan, or land, the land of Canaan, as their inherited promised land. Two things. This is kind of review. Remember, from a couple of weeks ago, Yahweh even tells Abraham his descendants in Genesis 15 would be in Egypt for 400 years. So this isn't something that has surprised God, and this really shouldn't have been something that surprised them. The Lord in Genesis 15 told them what was coming, and that was being in Egypt for 400 years. Okay, But in Genesis 15, he also says they're going to be in Egypt for 400 years, but he would bring them out at that point. Okay, So this wasn't just a promise. This wasn't just a promise. God didn't go to Abraham and say, you know what? I feel good today. I'm going to make you a promise. That's not what this is. This was a promise that was a result of covenant. This was the fruit. <laughs> this was the fruit from the tree of covenant was the promise. Well, it wasn't Yahweh saying, you know what, Abraham, buddy? Let me, let me promise you a little something today. It was Abraham and Yahweh step into a marriage covenant. That's the Hebrew word, bereath. The Hebrew word for covenant is bereath, and it is the word used for a marriage covenant. So in the Hebrew, if I said, I married Jordan, my wife, I would say, I bereathed her. That's the Hebrew word for a marriage covenant. When God comes and makes a covenant with Abraham, it uses the word bereath. Why? Because Yahweh did not step into a, you know what, if you do this, I'll do this, and we're going to be this, this uh, worky, slavey kind of partnership where we're always fighting. It was, I want to marry you. Now, I know we didn't hear that in Sunday school growing up, right? But what, what, what is this? Who are we? This is why you see in Psalm 8 when David says, Who is man that you are mindful of, that you would give them dominion over all your created order? David is looking upon this whole thing, this whole history, and says, Who is man that you wanted to marry us? That you wanted a covenant that we had stuff to put into it, but you also had stuff to put into it. Let me ask you something. Does a marriage covenant ever run out or end? Like me and my wife, is there an expiration date on our marriage? No. Okay? And that wasn't a trick question. Wait. Um, there, it doesn't run out, right? So when you enter into a marriage covenant, the intention, and honestly, 
what should be the result is forever. Never ends, right? So when Yahweh entered into a covenant, a bereath with Abram or Abraham later on, his intention was for this, no matter how bad it got, no matter how rough it got, no matter how bad you got, we are not ever ending this covenant. That's, right? Unbelievable. It never runs out. This is and was and always will be an everlasting covenant that he made to Abram and ultimately us. Now, I want to point out something real quick, and I kind of mentioned this before we go into Exodus, because this isn't going to make a lot of sense if I don't hit this, and I've been putting it off, but I'm going to ask you all to stay awake for five minutes, and I'm going to explain something um, that we uh, just never get, okay? There's a, a theological term that most people believe and don't know it, and, uh, but they teach it in um, seminary as the phrase, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, replacement theology. I don't know if anybody's ever heard that phrase, replacement theology, okay? And the idea is, okay, the idea is Jesus came to take your Old Testament, and I've been hitting towards this on Sundays too, to take your Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi, rip it out, light it on fire, and say, we don't need that anymore because I'm here. I'm the new covenant. That's what replacement theology is. And so right now we have, and I'm going to prove to you why that's wrong, but we have an entire culture that is built around that idea. We have Bibles that are produced in New Testament only. You know why? We don't really need the Old Testament. In fact, if I went around the room and said, how many of you have read the New Testament? Almost everybody would have raised your hands. Now, if I said, how many of you had read that same amount that you read in the New Testament in the Old Testament? Very few would raise their hands. And it's because there's this subconscious idea that Jesus came to rip it up and throw it away and give us something brand new. And that is not what he came to do. Jesus didn't come to give us a new covenant. And this is, I mean, even when they translated the scriptures, they separated, which I, I, I don't like this. I think it's great for us to search and find and all that stuff. But I hate the numbers in our Bibles and I hate the divisions in our Bibles. I hate them because that's not how they were written. So you'll be reading Exodus 1, and then you'll stop before you get to Exodus 2 because the number's there. I read chapter 1, and it breaks it in the dead middle of an idea. You never get what it's talking about because you stopped it too. So that's why I think everybody should buy the Bibles that are coming out without the numbers. Um, but anyway, all that aside, when Jesus comes, he says things like this. Let me just kind of kind of teach this for a moment. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, Jesus I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Now, that's what your, that's what your Bible says. I'm going to give you the Josh translation, which I think is a lot more accurate. So, I did not come to abolish. Okay? That word abolish is, is in my opinion, a very poor translation. And it's, I believe it's translated from this idea of replacement theology. But it's a translation. That word abolish in the Hebrew means a lot of things. But I like, this is my personal favorite, it means unyoke. Unyoke. So Jesus is saying, this is the trend. I did not come 
to unyoke you from the law and prophets. That's the translation. I came to, now here's what all your Bibles say, fulfill. Eh, wrong. He says, I did not come to unyoke you or, well, I'm going to stop right there. I could go and I could spend all day. I've been studying this so much. I didn't come to unyoke you from the law and prophets. I came so that they might be filled to the brim. It's one of the translations. So that you might be filled with is another translation. But every single one of the translations for that word that in all your Bible says fulfill, none of them have to do with the idea of ending and throwing away. None of them. But when you read the word in the English, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill what a lot of people read that and say is, oh, well, at that time, he didn't come to throw them away. But he did come to fulfill or to end them. So at the cross, that's when they were fulfilled and that's when they were ended. And when Jesus, even if we use the word fulfill, he's talking about the prophecies that were spoken over the Messiah that he did, in fact, come to fulfill. But he's not talking about the law. In fact, Galatians 3.29 says this, okay? And this is why you need to know this because of what we're about to read. This is what Paul says. If we are Christ's, if we are in Christ, then all of us are Abraham's offspring and heirs to the promise. Well, brother, what does that mean? The covenant that God made with Abraham was exclusive to the Israelites until Jesus came. And he broke the barrier of the Israelites being exclusive to God. And now everyone was exclusive to God. So he's saying, now if you believe in Christ, if you're saved, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are the inheritors of his promise, which was everlasting. Remember, does, an, does a marriage contract have an ending? No. Right? If me and my wife die and 500 years down the road, somebody talks about us, do they talk about us as single because we're dead? No. You know why? Because it never runs out. So we can get 50 billion years in the future, and as long as you believe in Christ, you're still Abraham's seed, and you're still in line to receive his promise. Well, what was the promise? Descendants like the stars in the sky, innumerable descendants, that through your descendants, the entire world would be blessed, that I will make your name, the name of Abraham, ultimately the name of Yahweh through Abraham, through Jesus, famous. Right? These are all the promises. And so... If you are in Christ, you're Abraham's offspring and heirs to the promise. Now, let me read this real quick, real quick, real quick. I had a question mark by this, but I just feel it right now. So, and it's early. are y'all still with me? I'm just teaching like a quick theology course. Some of y'all paying thousands of dollars to get this for free. Um, Matthew, listen, listen to what he says, seriously. Matthew 5, and you, tell, you just tell me if, uh, if Jesus comes to throw it away or if Jesus comes to make the standard higher than it was. Here's what Jesus said. Again, quoting Jesus, not me. If you think that I've come to set aside, this is the Passion Translation, I like, I like how he says this. If you think I've come to set aside the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, you're wrong. 
I have come to fulfill and bring to perfection all that has been written. Okay, there's that word. Even though he says fulfill, that's okay. It's, it's the idea I've come to fill you to the brim with. That's kind of the whole idea of it. Indeed, I assure you, listen to what he says, as long as heaven and earth endure, not even the smallest detail of the law will be done away with until its purpose is complete. So whoever violates even the least important of the commandments and teaches others to do so will be the least esteemed in the realm of heaven's kingdom. Okay, now let me jump ahead. This is what Jesus says, verse 21. He says, you're familiar with the commandment that the older generation was taught, do not murder or you will be judged. That's what the law says. Now you tell me if this sounds like he's throwing something away. Okay? Your, your ancestors were taught, don't murder or you will be judged. But I'm telling you, if you hold anger in your heart toward a fellow believer, you are subject to judgment. He's not throwing away. He's saying, you know, what they taught, that was great. I'm here to raise the standard. At one point, if you murdered, you were judged. Now, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you have murdered them. Your ancestors have been taught never commit adultery. However, I tell you, if you look with lust in your eyes at the body of a woman who is not your wife... You've already committed adultery in your heart. Huh? At one point, you were commanded to not do the act. I've come to tell you, if you have the mindset, whether or not you do the act, you've done the act. What, so what is, what is Jesus doing? I mean, you could keep going. Making oaths. He goes in. He talks about loving your enemies. Listen to this. Your ancestors, We need a good dose of this right here. Your ancestors have also been taught to love your neighbors and hate the one who hates you. Your, this is what your ancestors were taught. You respond to what they give you. So what they were taught about. So if they love you, love them right back. If they hate you, go ahead and hate them. Sound, does that sound familiar? If not, that, that's what we do. Okay. So love your neighbors and hate the one. And I say that because that's something I got to fix in me. Love your neighbors and hate the one. However, I tell you, Love your enemy. Bless the one who curses you and do something wonderful for the one who hates you. And respond to the very ones who persecute you by praying for them. Look, your ancestors have been taught to love. Man, I'm about to preach a whole other message. Your ancestors have been taught, love your neighbors and hate the one who hates you. However, I'm telling you, you love your enemy. And if they persecute you and say something against you, you pray for them. I struggle with that. I know y'all are perfect, but I struggle with that. When somebody persecutes me, somebody sends me an email. Well, brother, you're Satan, you know, and all this other stuff. When, you know, somebody sends me an email, you know what my first response is? And I'm working on it. It is not, well, bless you. <laughs> it's not, Okay. My response, I can't say on live stream, okay? And then I have to repent for it. But so I'm, that's something I'm working on. My, but why am I pointing this out? I want to say Jesus did not come to throw away the Old Testament. 
We subconsciously think that. He did not come to throw it away. He came to give everyone access to God by becoming the way which we fulfill the law. So by loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, we actually fulfill the law through faith. So it's not an issue of whether we're living in the new law or the old law. We're living in the only law. The only thing that's changed is how we fulfill it. At once we fulfilled it by our works, now we fulfill it by faith in Christ Jesus who came to fill the law to perfection. Think about this. Jesus comes and he says, at one point you had a law which tried to fix all your works. Don't commit adultery. Right? Love those who love you and hate those who hate you. It's all, but I've come to fix the mindset that caused you to struggle with that stuff before. So over here, you were taught to say, no, 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 no. I've come to deal with the mindset that you struggled so hard to say no to. Because if you murder somebody, why do you murder them? Because you have anger in your heart toward them. You don't murder people you love. You murder people who make you mad. Right? You have anger. You've, you have hate towards them if you murder them. So Jesus comes and says, I'm not going to deal with the fact that y'all murder each other. I'm coming to deal with the fact that you look at your brother and you're angry at them no matter how bad they've treated you. So he, he elevates the standard because he has elevated the access. The further you go in the temple the more of a purification has to take place within you or you don't make it, right? So as he's opening up the way for us to go into the proverbial holy of holies in everything that we do, he's also raising the standard for us to live in a holiness that wasn't accessible before Christ because now we're covered in the blood, but don't hear that and think that he came and says, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way to Malachi, rip it out and shred it. Let's start at Matthew, brother. We got healed the sick and raised the dead. We absolutely need to do that. But we better have our mindset on knowing that the Old Testament Yahweh is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this gives us access into his character and into his nature. And if you pick it up at Matthew, you'll learn a lot about Jesus You'll learn a lot about the early church, but you're going to miss the heart of what God was revealing when he comes to Abraham and says, step outside your tent and look at the stars in the sky. That's how many descendants I'm going to give you. Not because you've earned it, not because you did anything, not because you're perfect, and definitely not because you've been obedient. I'm coming to do this just because I love you and because I want to. So what do we find out about God's nature in that what do we find out about God's nature when Hezekiah is dying and he goes to Isaiah and says, go pray to the Lord that I be healed. Isaiah goes to the Lord and says, Lord, would you heal him? And the Lord says, go make this ointment and place it on Hezekiah. And when you do, he'll live another 15 years. Hezekiah was on his deathbed. Great king. But the Lord loved him so much that in a moment of crying out in desperation to be healed, the Lord steps in and says, I'm going to give you another 15 years. This, this is the God, the God of Ruth. The God of Ruth, who Naomi loses all her boys, her husband, her two sons. She has one Moabite that's not even an Israelite that the law tells the Israelites to have nothing to do with. 
and she brings Ruth into the fold, she finds a Boaz who is willing to lose a lot of stuff in order to be Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And by the end of it, Naomi, who had lost everything, is holding the baby that would produce David. This is the God. It's the God of Esther that when an announcement is made that all of Israel be killed, Esther has aligned herself in such a posture with the king that she whispers in his ear and saves an entire nation. She never picks up a sword. She never picks up a shield and says, let's go do spiritual warfare, baby. You know what she does? She walks up to the king and in intimacy says, this is what I desire. And saves the whole nation. If if I ask you, who is the greatest warrior in Israel's history, you would say David, probably, Gideon, Samson, but no one would say Esther. You know why? Because she never picked up a sword. However, Esther did more than any other warrior in Israel's history without ever touching a sword. Could y'all turn that heat off? I'm like roasting. Thank you. So in Christ, we align ourselves with the covenant of Abraham. This is massive in understanding the fact that he never forgets what he speaks. That he loved us so much that he didn't just say it. He entered into a marriage covenant with us. Think about this. Because God did this. Because he entered into this marriage covenant. We... Yes, we have things that we have to uphold on our side of the covenant. For example, saying yes to salvation. There there are things that we have to do to uphold our side of the covenant. Right? But if Yahweh enters into a covenant with us, that means there are things that he has to do to uphold his end of the covenant. Well, brother, that's blasphemy. God don't have to do anything. Yeah. He said yes to covenant. This is a God. He is totally okay saying, you know what? I'm going to put my name on the line. I'm going to uphold my end. You uphold your end. And if you don't uphold your end, I'll come uphold it for you. This stuff is so good. So here's what you and I were never taught. We were never taught this. At least I wasn't. That there are things that God has to do to uphold his end of the covenant that he willingly entered into with us. As we see in Jesus. I asked somebody this the other day, and it's kind of a trick question. Did Jesus have to come? Think about this. Think about it. Did God have to send Jesus? I would say... Maybe I shouldn't answer this. Okay, I should. We need some extra seats in here. Um, I'm just playing. I would say yes. Did God have to send Jesus? Yes. Well, how can you say that? Because he made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. One of your descendants will be on your throne forever. 
The only possibility of that being fulfilled is if the Messiah comes and reigns on the throne of David forever. Did Jesus have to come? Absolutely. Because Yahweh rigged the whole system in the beginning. Christ was crucified, Revelation says, from the foundation of the earth. God wasn't just surprised when the world went awful. He knew he was going to have to send Jesus from day one and still did everything. This is the God of love. We see the law as a God that's angry. If you will read the law, he's not angry. He's not disappointed. He's not upset. If you'll read it, he's trying to allow them to live in alignment with the identity that he freely gave them. This is it's drenched in love. It's not even drenched in works. All right, I need to stop before I get myself in trouble. Proverbs 6 says there are six things that the Lord hates, and one of those is a lying tongue. James 1 says that God can't be tempted with evil, nor can he tempt with evil. Okay? So God hates a lying tongue. James 1 says God cannot be tempted with evil. He can't do evil. He couldn't do it if he wanted to. Numbers 23.19 says that God cannot lie or change his mind. So the most certain thing on earth is God's word. And God's covenant. What does Isaiah 55, 11 says? So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty or void, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which it was sent. Jeremiah 1, 12, one of my favorite verses lately. He says, I am watching over my word to perform it. You don't even have to watch. I'm going to watch over everything I say and make sure every single dot of it is completed. Now look at that, all this, look at all this. Let that be the lens that I'm about to read Exodus 2, uh, 2 verse 23 to tw- through uh, 25. Actually, I'm going to start at 11, just to give us a little bit of context. So I told you I didn't have a lot, and I'm almost done. Okay, Exodus 2, some of y'all are laughing. Don't laugh. Um, <laughs> verse 11, one day Moses had grown up. Well, yeah, of course he did one day. Um, I just think it's kind of funny. Sometimes your Bible's a little hilarious. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he, excuse me, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So now Moses is a murderer. Just to be clear, at this point, Moses is a murderer. I would say he is on the, the scale of morality. Moses is lower than everybody in this room at this point. I mean, unless somebody's murdered somebody in here, which I really hope not. The law is watching. No. Um, so he buried him in the sand. Verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? That's real ironic with what's to come. He's actually going to be the prince and the judge over them. Who made you prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well, verse 16. 
Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Sipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now here we go, right here. This is where we pick up the story. 400 years after the promise to Abraham. Verse 23. During those days... During those, excuse me, let me read this in the ESV. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And when, this is the verse, and when God heard their groaning, he remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. If you read that in the NLT, it'll say God knew it was time to act. Okay? God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. He remembered, he saw, and he knew. This word for remembered is zakar. Zakar. In the Hebrew. And it, like most Hebrew words, has a long meaning. You could write a book about it. It appears 221 times in the Old Testament and is applied to both God toward man, as in God remembered man, and it's really applied most of the time to man toward God, like remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, for example. The first time, though, that it's mentioned, and probably to me the most memorable is in Genesis 8 when God remembered the animals and the family in the ark. Okay? When we read this, at least when I read this, we think God forgot, and one day it hit him. Oh, Noah, I totally forgot. We got to go rescue him. That, I mean, if I'm being just straight up honest with you, for years when I read this, if you go back in Genesis 8 and read this, it's, it's actually kind of funny. Because it goes through this whole account, major account. And if you can imagine this, we got like a little felt board back there. I think they could probably act it out better. But imagine this. Everybody's dead. So you got Noah, seven other people. That is his family, by the way. Extra righteous. Okay? So you got Noah, his family, a bunch of animals floating on water. Everyone else has died. And then you read Genesis 8. And then it says, God remembered Noah. So this is how I always picture it. They're just floating around, you know, singing songs, doing whatever. And God's just sitting around, you know, drinking some coffee, doing it. He's sitting there, oh, man, I feel like I'm supposed to remember something. Oh, Noah. You know what I'm saying? That's how I read it because I'm just funny. And so, you know, it's like, so when I read this for the first time years ago, 
it's the same situation where the Israelites, they're just slaving away, slaving away, slaving away. And the Lord's like, man, what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I promised them I would rescue them. Y'all, we got to do something. Moses, I know you're a murderer. It's not really a thing, but I'm going to need you to go rescue my people. Totally forgot. Could have raised up somebody better. You know what I mean? That type of thing. And, um, and so when we read this, we really think, because we have a bad view of God, as I said in the beginning, we, we literally think that God is fickle, that he's easily distracted, and that he easily forgets what he speaks. And so because of that view, when we read things in the English without knowing, like, God heard their groaning, and then he remembered. We see it as how we view God, which is, he spoke that promise, he forgot, and then it just happened to be at the same time he told Abram long ago, 400 years into it, that he remembered and said, you know what, I got to go rescue them. And it hit me when I was reading this this week, because I'm also reading through the Bible with all you guys, and, um, and it hit me as I was reading this that, I want to say this right, that there is a part of me <clears throat> that sometimes struggles with seeing things in the long view of things. So like legacy, I talk about a lot. Seeing things, like I say, um, for example, um, would you be faithful or would you be okay if you never saw the fulfillment or the fullness of what God has spoken to you, but your great-grandkids did? You know, stuff like that. And as I'm, excuse me, I'm, it got so hot in here, I was just drenched, but now I'm cool enough, so thank y'all for turning the air on. Um, but as I'm thinking through this this week and I'm reading this, it hit me that the reason I struggle, and I don't know about you, struggle with seeing things in such a long-term view, which is honestly how God designs everything. He speaks every little word with the long view in mind, right? That's just his nature. That I struggle with seeing things like God sees them because I see him as a God that my promises are so insignificant in the grand scheme of what he's doing in the world, in the kingdom, and in history that he may not remember them years down the road. So it's easy for me to trust and hold strong as long as I'm going to see the fulfillment of everything I need to see in my lifetime. Why? Because I can control it. If God forgets, I can step in and take control and we'll still rock and roll. But if I'm dead, I can't control it anymore. And if I feel God is a God that easily forgets, and I know this sounds real elementary, but some of you would, if I said, do you believe God forgets your promises? You would say, absolutely not. And yet you're living your life right now as a result of a subconscious belief. God forgot what he spoke to you when you were a kid. Or God forgot what he spoke to you even last year. Or you forgot, God forgot what he spoke to you in January. We were all pumped about the year of clear vision. Right? I just want to break this down, though. The word zakar, that's translated remember, it could be translated, and this isn't even all of them, but I'm going to just hit some of these just so you can kind of get an idea of what it actually means in the Hebrew. It could be translated remember. It could be translated recall, call to mind, and that's usually as affecting present feeling, thought, or action. Um, also, to make use of, to use to their advantage, 
to remember an obligation. I thought that was really huge in the idea of covenant. To remember an obligation, to keep in mind, to think on, to keep a covenant, to record, to commemorate. Or it could even be used, um, it's translated one time in the Old Testament as a memorial sacrifice. Okay, so just so you get an idea of how broad this, this word is. Strong, excuse me, Strong's concordance, which I like to use a lot, identifies this word as this. Uh, Strong says it means to burn incense, to earnestly make mention of, to be mindful of, and to recount. And the last one, to mark off. So here's the idea. The idea is not that God had brain fog or got too busy and it slipped his mind. That's not what this word is talking about. The idea is that God never forgot, that it was always on the front of his mind, that it was actually the lens he saw them through. That he remembered, he saw, and he knew. That's the end of that verse. Knew is the word yada, which I teach on all the time, which is a deep, intimate knowledge by experience. Okay, so let me, let me kind of give you my translation, and I don't claim to be a, a Bible translator, but just breaking down what the Hebrew means of what verses 24 and 25 says. Okay, so th- this is kind of the meaning translation of it. That God understood their groaning and was mindful of the obligation to covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had his gaze fixed on his people, and he intimately knew it was time to fulfill his word. If you break down all their, if you're reading this in Hebrew, that's what you would have understood reading that. That he understood. It wasn't that he just heard their groaning. Like they started crying out, and all of a sudden he was like, what's that noise? Oh, that's my people. It was, he, the, the word should be translated, understood. That when he heard, he knew. He understood what was happening. He didn't forget. He didn't take his eyes off of them. He saw every single moment. And the lens by which he was viewing every moment of their existence through was the covenant he made with Abraham. It wasn't that he just all of a sudden remembered, oh, I made a covenant. It was that he continually called to mind I made a covenant. The promised land is coming if you'll just hold on a little bit longer. That's the idea. That when God speaks something to us, it's not even that he just never forgets his word. I think that's stopping way short of what God actually does. It's not convincing ourselves the Lord never forgets. That's, that's, way, that's an impoverished view of who God is. Okay? Sure, he never forgets his word, but the idea is that he views everything about you, everything about your life through his word. That's the idea. It's not that here's you, God spoke all this stuff over you, and he's never going to forget it. It's that here's you, and around you is all the stuff that God has spoken over you, so he cannot look at you without looking through everything that he's spoken over you. 
So how does that view? So now when we're taking what we call big steps of faith, how do we do that now in light of understanding? God doesn't just continually bring it to mind. He can't even look at me without knowing what he spoke over my life. Jesus, I taught this last week, was 30 years old before he ever did a lick of ministry. What was happening from zero to 30? All we know is one account, but we can take a lot of guesses. I choose to believe that from zero to 30, he had a mom, and he had his own personal intimacy with his dad. And I'm not talking about Joseph. He was a great guy. Most scholars believe Joseph probably died when he was a teenager. We don't know why. Um, But that's what most scholars um, kind of agree on. But he had a mom who was overshadowed by the Most High. And then he had a father who was Abba. What was happening from zero to 30? It was he was growing. Because, I mean, Jesus came in human flesh. Fully God, yet fully man. So as a man... He was full of the Spirit, yet had to learn what it meant to be full of the Spirit. He was the Son of God, literally, yet had to learn what it means to be the Son of God. So he can relate to us in every way, because is that not what we do? We get saved, so technically we are sons and daughters of God, and yet every day we are learning what it means to be a son and daughter of God. So he's growing up, learning to live in identity, learning a lot of the same stuff that we learn on a weekly basis. And then at age 30, he gets baptized and the Lord transfers the inheritance of the family business in Israel terms over to his son with the announcement, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus goes off and literally changes the world. God wasn't looking at this baby and then young kid, and then young adult, and then grown man, and then man full of the ministry as, that's my son, and over here I've got all the stuff I spoke to Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those other prophets, and then over here I've got my nature. He looked at Jesus, and every time he looked at Jesus, he saw the words of Isaiah. He saw the words of Jeremiah. He saw the words of Ezekiel. And every time he looked at him and spoke through him and moved through him, he had in mind, behold, I do a new thing. It springs up. Do you not perceive it? I make, I'm making a way in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland. By his stripes we are healed. He's, he's, he has all this stuff in mind. Behold, um, uh, I have promises for a hope and a future for you, not to fail you, not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future. He's got all this stuff in mind as he's looking at his son, and that's what he views us in the lens of. He wasn't taking off, taken off guard by the Israelites groaning. He wasn't taken off guard by Moses running to Midian. He wasn't taken off guard by their groaning because every morning he woke up and viewed them in light of what he told Abraham in Genesis 15, which is, your descendants will be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but then I'm going to bring them out, and I'm going to bring them to the land in which I showed you. 
He knew. It didn't just happen to be 400 years later. The Lord made sure 400 years later that Moses was standing before a bush that was burning yet wasn't being consumed. And he said, send my people out of Egypt by going to talk to Pharaoh. Well, when I go, who do I tell them sent me? You tell them that I am sent you. They'll know what you're talking about. It was, it was a caught off guard. The first person in Scripture that hears the name Yahweh is Moses. The first person in all of Scripture that God reveals his name to is Moses, the murderer. Why? Because he viewed Moses and the rest of the Israelites through the lens of ultimately the marriage. He wasn't the murderer. He was the bride. You're not the one that disappointed him or the partier or the one who goes out and drinks or the one who goes out and posts stuff that you shouldn't be posting or the one who goes out and hates everybody or cuts people off in traffic or flicks people off and they cut you off in traffic. That's not who you are. When he views you, he views you and says, that is my bride. All the other stuff we're going to work out because I'm going to see you through the lens that you are my bride. When he dies on the cross, he screams out the last thing, Kala! And the Hebrews standing there, the Romans probably had no idea what he was talking about if they spoke Greek. But the Hebrews standing around had to have this moment where they said, Dear Lord, what have we done? Because what does God call the Israelites in the wilderness? His bride. And when the Son of God is hanging on a cross, and he calls out, Kala, it is finished, my bride. Something hits their ears that says, what have we done? Then three days later, here comes Jesus walking through town. And you've got all the 12, ultimately 120, in an upper room that receive the inheritance of a covenant that isn't a different one, that is not a new one, but it's newly accessible. And in the upper room, they finally receive the relationship with Yahweh that they were designed to receive when the law was first given to Moses. Under the blood of Jesus. This is unbelievable. Because what, what does the tongues and all that stuff, what does that stuff come in? It comes in fire. Where did the law come in? Fire. They knew what was happening. They knew he wasn't doing something new. He was doing something new, but it was a, it was a new old thing. Right? He was doing something brand new, yet it was something that wasn't new at all. And they knew it. This is the scriptures. So it's not, that just, it's not just that God never forgets. Matt, come up here. I'm, I'm done. I'm on my last point. I've milked this last point for all it's worth. It's not that he just never forgets. It's that he views everything about you in your life through his word. He moves you day in and day out with that or those words in mind. Every moment of Israel's 400 plus years in Egypt were rooted in what had been promised to Abraham. Now let me ask you this. This is, my, um, this is my last sentence. How much trust and purpose 
do you hear when you start to believe that he's never forgotten? In fact, he views you through everything that he's spoken. Like how, how easy, how easy, this is what it should be. How easy is it to move by the impulses of the spirit or move by faith or move by the word of the Lord when you know it is literally impossible for him to forget and to let you down. How? Because he can't even look at you without seeing every word he's ever spoken. His, this is kind of a good way to think of it. His words over your life are like a refuge covering over you. I believe we're protected by things the Lord has spoken over us. Prove it. Jesus is on a boat. The boat's sinking. They're crashing. They're screaming out, we're all going to die. And I would go back and say, y'all knew what the prophet spoke about this man. He had to go to the cross. He did not go to the cross yet. So it's literally impossible for the Son of God to die out here on a boat with a bunch of water. Why? Because that's not what the prophet said. The prophet said, by his stripes we were healed, not by his drowning. You see what I'm saying? So the, the, the word of the Lord literally became their protection. They had to make it to the other side. Why? Because in their boat was the Son of Man that would one day go to a cross and save the globe. Same thing with you. The Lord spoke things over your life that you have written down in your journals, that you have typed out in your phones, and a lot of them you have forgotten about. A lot of them you've shoved on a shelf and they're collecting dust because you believe the Lord has actually forgotten or He's changed His mind or you've done something to knock yourself out of alignment with those words and now you're all of a sudden not going to taste anywhere near the fulfillment of what He spoke over you because of what you've done. This is not a law now through Jesus of what you can do do. This is a law that is of who you are. And Jesus comes to make it impossible for you to change who you are once you come into the family. The prodigal son never lost his sonship. He just ran away for a little bit. I mean, think about this. This is stuff that the old church was scared of because they thought that this was going to be a license to sin. If you hear this and hear, well, boy, I can go out and party all day long because I can't lose my identity, you don't have an identity yet. I hear this and say, I can do no wrong, so let's go. The, the possibility of me failing, the possibility of him being disappointed in me is now removed from the table. What can we do now that our identity has been solidified? Let me say it like this. You are a light that darkness cannot comprehend and cannot overcome. No amount of darkness, listen to this, no amount of darkness could drown out the lights in this room. The only way that this room could be dark is if we shut off the lights. No amount of anything that the little, old, insignificant, under my foot, puny grain of sand devil could do to you. The only thing he could do to you is try to whisper, you know what, you're not a son of God. I try to give the devil a country voice just to make him sound even worse. You know, like, you know what, brother, you're not. Actually, I try to make him sound like people who emo. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm totally, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. See, that's the part I'm working on. Um, I'm, t I'm, just, I'm just playing. You know what, well, brother, you're, you're just not good. 
You're just nothing. And you know what I do? I do this right here. Bam, right there under my foot. You know, when we get a, we get a roach crawling through here, there's no mercy. No mercy. The mercy of Jesus, the blood of Jesus stopped right before it got to the roaches. And um, <laughs> just joking. I, you know, I, ask, I ask the Lord all the time, Lord, in the new heaven and new earth, are there going to be mosquitoes? Because we're going to have some issues. Um, no, nah, I'm just kidding. But if there's a roach, listen, if there's a roach running through this building, you know what I don't do? Go get out my Bible and start swinging away. Spiritual warfare, brother. You know what I, you know what I do? Well, I might use my Bible, but the only reason I'm going to use my Bible is to go, whoa, bam, gone. Anytime the devil, I, I'm so sick of the devil. Every time the devil tries to come whisper something to you, you just take your foot and grind it right into the ground and say, no thanks, not here. You can go deal with somebody else, but this place is closed. There ain't no vacancy here. I'm so, listen. I am so sick of the devil. I'm so sick of hearing about the devil. I'm so sick of thinking about the devil. I'm so sick of people saying the devil's winning in 2020. The devil ain't winning in 2020. The Lord is winning. People are becoming authentic ones. I believe there's 120 rising up that are willing to sit in an upper room if it takes years, if it takes decades, if it takes generations after generations after generations because he said it and we believe it. That's what I believe is happening. And the last time that happened, tongues of fire fell and the church exploded through the globe. And it wasn't a mega church. And it wasn't this big popular church where everybody was wearing Yeezys. It was the church of Yahweh that saved the cosmos. That Pete Paul is in jail and he's writing for the joy before him. That wasn't just Jesus. It wasn't for the joy set before him he endured the cross. Paul's writing in jail and said, I hope I stay here longer because everybody in the jail is getting saved. That's the gospel. You know you're in the gospel when you get put in prison and you're writing saying, you know what, I hope I'm here a little bit longer because all these people, revival's breaking out everywhere. That is the gospel. It's not, man, I hope people show up to church Sunday. That ain't the gospel. Well, man, we got to have more inflatables to get people to show up. No, no, no. We've got to have more Jesus. And if Jesus isn't enough for people to show up, we're not doing church anyway. Let me say it like this. If Jesus ain't enough for people to show up, then don't show up. Because as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And if you want to serve the Lord, and if you want to be who you're designed to be, and if you want to be in intimacy with the one you're designed to be in intimacy with, there is a place in Columbia that has said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to serve the culture. We're not going to serve what's cool. We're not going to serve Instagram. We're not going to serve what everybody else is doing. We're going to serve the Lord, and we believe in serving the Lord that our great, 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 great kids are going to be kings and queens in the kingdom kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And I'll give my life the rest of my days to laying the foundation that no one will ever see, that no one will even ever care about. I don't care if you care. I don't care if you listen to my messages once I die. I don't want people at my funeral. I don't, I sure don't want people at my funeral to be playing my messages. Well, brother, that was a great, I want people to come down to my daughter and say, you better buckle up because dad's gone. That means you're queen now. That's what I want. I don't care if people remember my messages. I hope they help you. I hope they become seeds for you. But at the end of the day, if you hearing this message today 
doesn't cause you to set your alarm and wake up in the morning and get in the secret place and weep under the fact that you're not embarrassed, you're not ashamed, you stand in wonder at what, you're, what you've made. I am loved by you. If that's not something that causes you, if this message isn't something that causes you to yearn for that place, then I have failed as a pastor. I don't want you to leave with a bunch of good notes. I don't want you to leave with a bunch of good uh, sermons. I don't want you to leave knowing a little bit more Hebrew. That's not what I want. If we get there along the way, awesome. But what I want you to leave with is a burning passion on the inside of you that says, I want what he's got. I'll take a double portion of what he's got. I don't need Cracker Barrel. I don't need Cookout. I'll take that. I don't need a cover song. I don't need an event. And I don't need him to look like Kanye. I need the gospel of Jesus Christ to seep so deep into me that my great grandkids aren't sitting around saying, man, how can we make church relevant? I want my great grandkids to sit around saying, we've got so much fire, we don't know what to do with it. What do we do? I want my great-grandkids to sit around in a room and say, we've saved China, we've saved Iraq, we've saved Africa, we've saved America, we've saved Mexico. What do we do now? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fired up because I see where we are. I told them this over there before the service. I feel like the only way I know how to describe this, and if you're watching this and this is like screaming in your ear, then I'm sorry. No, I'm not. So let's say this is a cliff. You want to know where I feel like we are? I feel like we're about right here. And there's a lot of you who you're starting to hear the whispers, just go. And you're, and you're nervous and you're holding back and you're saying, well, what about what happened to me when I was a kid? And what about what I experienced when my, I was at my last church? And what about what I experienced with my family? And what about what I've experienced in relationships? And he's saying, don't worry about it. Just go. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. It springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and springs in the wasteland. I don't speak one word without watching over it and making sure it's performed to the exact period that I spoke it. You're on the edge. You're on the edge, and you're starting to hear. This is why I'm getting sick of the doubt. You're starting to hear these whispers. Well, oh, man, that, there ain't a lot to do there. Man, you got, you got talents. You need to be singing. You need to be preaching. Yeah, yeah, there ain't a lot to do there. We can learn. Be discipled. <laughs> you can do that on YouTube. I'm preaching right now. Be, be disciple. You don't need to be disciple. You got the gospel. You got the word. Somebody needs to somebody needs to disciple you and tell you what this word is. If Jesus couldn't do ministry for thirty years until he learned and he was the word made flesh, we gotta be real careful just jumping and starting to do ministry when we ain't got a clue what Exodus says. We have people doing ministry and leading churches that have never read through the Bible before. Never. 60% of pastors don't read their Bible unless they're planning a message. That means if they don't have a message coming up Sunday, they ain't reading their Bible. This is our leader. This, this is why some of y'all are like, well, brother, why are you so harsh on the church? Because I'm a part of the church, and you're a part of the church. This has nothing to do with dream. This has everything to do with the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. That's what this has to do with. So I'm not just concerned with what's happening here. A lot of people might feel like that. I'm not. 
I'm not concerned with just us having revival. I refuse to rest until every church in this city has revival. That's what I want. I want us to have revival, but I want every Methodist and Episcopal and Catholic and every other denomination and every other division we have to be so baptized in revival that when people come into Columbia, they say, where's all the denominations? We don't got any. We're united. We are one body and Christ is the head of it. That, that's what I see for the church. I don't need to be preaching every, I love preaching every week and I think it's great, but I don't need to be preaching every week. You know what I'm saying? I think we're moving into a day where there's maybe four churches in Columbia. And it's not because they've closed. It's because we are so in intimacy with Yahweh that we look around saying, we're all doing the same thing. What on earth are we doing being in separate buildings? I, that's, I, I believe that. And if people think that's a, that's a far-fetched idea, he said he's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. What is your imagination? When you image a nation. Is it not? If you break the word, where does the word imagine? See, like, that's why I, I want to teach in a college. They wouldn't give me a mic to teach in a college. That's okay. But uh, imagination, when you break that word down, it's imagine nation put together to form Imagination. So, you know what I'm doing in my time? I'm sitting around imagining what Columbia is going to look like. Because he said he's going to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. I wonder if the Lord maybe hasn't done a lot because there's not been a lot of people imagining stuff for him to go beyond. For your family, let's see, for my family, it's not enough just for my daughter to be saved. I want my daughter to be saved from hell. Nope, that ain't enough for me. That's, that's, the, that's the, the baseline of what I expect. I want my daughter, when she speaks, I want mountains to tremble. I want my daughter to say one word and every bird in the air stop and say, what is she saying? I want my daughter to walk through the zoo and as she, because this has happened before. Oh, man. And as she's walking through, you got lions that are doing their thing and they stop and say, who is that? I mean, all of creation's yearning on, ex standing on tiptoe, waiting in expectation for what? The manifestation of the sons and daughters of Yahweh. Who is all of creation? The lions and the bears and the birds and the trees. I want her to walk outside and it be 150 degrees with 100,000% humidity in Columbia. And when she walks outside, all of a sudden there's a breeze that starts to blow. And the temperature starts going... Y'all think I'm crazy. He told me he'll do immeasurably more than all I could ever ask or imagine. So my imagination is higher than it's ever been because I'm looking around this room and I'm seeing people that you're not just world changers. Brother, you're going to change the world. That's not, that's not. I believe you might change the world. But I'm looking around this room and I'm seeing people who Yahweh is so fascinated with. That is dangerous to a culture that is grasping for identity tell us who we are tell us who we are and then all of a sudden somebody walks by that knows who they are what if we had a president or somebody running for president that knew who they were I, I would dare say it would rock the globe if we had one candidate 
that knew exactly who they were. I mean, this is powerful stuff. I could teach you how to change the world because I've been a part of some very big church movements. We, we could pack this place out next week if we wanted to. We absolutely could. No problem. We, get, we do a fundraiser, raise about $20,000, $40,000, million, whatever. I promise we'll pack this place out before you know it, before you blink an eye. We can. I know how to. I'll give you a list right now. That's not what I desire. I desire you and I to be so convinced of who we are that all of creation starts shifting. Because sons and daughters are starting to be manifested. If that was the church idea, if that was our idea of reaping the harvest, it wasn't going, and I love evangelizing, by the way. I think it's awesome. But it wasn't go, 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 go. It was B, 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 B. We would actually reach the harvest. This is unbelievable stuff. I'm going to wrap it up. God has not forgotten. I say, the reason I kind of have ex, going on to in all this extra stuff is to tell you, God has not forgotten. I'm more expectant today than I was three years ago when we were preparing for this first service of this church. I'm more expectant today. Do you know why? Because back then we had two, including Jordan, I guess three, and including Veda, four. So we had four. And then Ellington came along. And then God began to bring all these pieces, Tammy, Journey, all these other pieces. And now I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing people who have only been here for a week or three weeks or a year or a month or three months. And the Lord is literally creating this spiritual melting pot of people who have come from different denominations and different backgrounds and different races and different ideals and different countries even. And he's molding them into what it actually looks like to be one body, one flesh. There's no distinction between man, woman, slave, free. And I don't mean transgender, by the way. I mean, we're not looking at each other for what you can do. We're looking at each other for who you are. So I'm not looking at a woman as lesser because the culture calls women lesser. I'm looking at a woman as somebody who is equally identified as someone who could change the cosmos because he looked at Adam and said, it is not good for you to do this alone. So I'm going to pull a woman out of you who is equal to you, who is operating with you. And as you co-submit to each other, you're going to bring the globe into its design. There's neither slave nor free. I'm not going to say that. Because I'll start laughing. Right? So I, I, I want us, Lord, I can, I can see we are so close. This is why I'm passionate today. I'm going to wrap it up. I've said that 12 times. I'm trying to encourage you. I, I, I am so confident. So This is my last message as age 28, okay? So I got to give it my all. I'm so confident in what I see the Lord doing in the globe. All I've got to say is you better be convinced of who you are going into this next year. Uh, if there's one thing you could be praying about, because whether or not we like it, we're at the end of the year 2020. Most of us, I think, probably are cool with that. We're at the end of 2020. And as we're going into a new year, I'm telling you, what the Lord wants to do next year is only possible in a group of people who are fully convinced of who they are. Only possible. But if we could be convinced of who we are, you, you, changing the globe is going to be the least of our worries. We're going to look around saying, man, can y'all believe we sat around talking about how can we change the globe? So I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I just want you to pray with me um, in however way you need to respond to this. Lord, I pray, Yahweh, right now that you would 
allow us to understand that you are a God that does not forget, that you're a God who views us through everything you spoke over us. And the reason that is so relevant is because we're going into, our, as a church, our third year. You haven't forgotten one word. In fact, you're in the process right now of bringing a lot of those words into maturity and into pass to bringing them to pass. And so, Lord, I thank you in advance for what you're doing, but I really, really honestly and truly thank you that you're creating a family of people that are starting to finally buy into, if you said it, then I just believe it. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus says the Lord. We're, we're a family who are finally starting to believe that. And as we do, I believe we're going to see things in the secret place. I believe we're going to see the sick healed on a level we have never seen. And you know how it's going to happen? People are going to drive into the city limits of Columbia, and every disease is going to be illegal because of the amount of presence that is present within the city of Columbia. We're, we're going to look around saying, man, we haven't prayed for the sick in a long time. And it's not because we've been unfaithful. It's because there ain't no more sick. I, that's, that's what I believe the day we're moving into is. Yahweh, draw us deeper. Draw us deeper. Give us that Christmas morning yearning. That expectation. On a day in and day out basis. We wake up before our alarm because we're so excited. I love you, Lord. I love you. There are no questions. There is no doubt you look at me and feel proud. It's the case for everybody in this room. Hey, let me ask you this while your eyes are closed. I, I don't do this a lot. Um, and I, I say that we've actually done this, I guess, a good bit lately. But is there anybody in the room that needs to be saved today? Like maybe you've never started a relationship with Jesus. If not, that's okay. I just want to give the opportunity. I feel like we're just going deep in identity and I want to give a lot of people an entry point. Maybe you're watching online. You've never had a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you prayed a prayer but never actually started a relationship with Jesus. Just do it today. Today, start that relationship. Say yes to covenant. That's all it is. Um, so Lord, I thank you for the salvation in this room. Lord, I, I pray a blessing over this people. I pray joy over this people going into this week. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.